0: I made a mistake last night that's unforgivable when you have a grandfather who has a PhD in that has a PhD in linguistics. And he is here today, so I had to correct this. We were talking about the three languages that the inscription, Jesus Christ King of the Jews, were written. And I had said that they were Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. But you were saying Aramaic, which I said I guessed it was like Latin, it was it's Hebrew, it's a it's a form of Hebrew, correct? It's a
1: street side Greek,
0: yeah. it's like the that, local language of Greek. Well, I, look, I must look, okay, uh, Koine Greek was a street language, yeah. and Aramaic, it was a Semitic language. So the, the New King James said Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, so I'm assuming that some translations that say Aramaic are referring to the Hebrew part of that, not the Latin part of it. Okay, uh, another thing, these notes are different than how I normally produce notes. These are not simply chronological follow along in your notes. These are charts that have been reproduced with permission. So, these are mainly going to be review. I flipped through them, for example, today. I'm sorry, but today is just going to be an absolute avalanche of information. If you thought I was talking fast yesterday. watch out. So for example, today we're going to start with uh, some heresies. On page 10 of your notes, there's a chart of some anti-Nicene heresies. So in other words, these were heresies that the church dealt with before the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. Rebecca, I wanted to thank you so much. For that song, it really ministered to me. But the line I really liked was uh, Jesus pleading with us that He's real, and that's been God's heart's cry to us ever since the beginning—that He's real and that He's good. And a counterpart to that has been Satan trying all kinds of different ways to tell us that He's not real, that He's not good. We're going to look at the first attacks of Satan on the church. The first heresies that sprang up. first one we're going to look at is Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism is probably a term a lot of you have heard of. Uh, Dan Brown with his novel The Da Vinci Code made it popular. Uh, be- some background before that, in 1945, uh, in Egypt at Nag Hammadi, Hammadi they found some scrolls It's a very significant find, much like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but these were Gnostic Gospels. And there's been certain professors today who are teaching that this is an alternate form of Christianity that had history gone a different course, we could all be Gnostic Christians today instead of Orthodox Christians. They say it was very tenuous, precarious, which version of Christianity was going to win out. This Gnosticism is when you get into it it's very interesting some of the basics of Gnosticism it's not a, a unified movement there was lots of variety but some common themes in Gnosticism were that they had they started out with that Greek concept of God that God was impassable the supreme ultimate being completely immaterial completely emotionless impassable but then as you got away from it, this is what the Gnostics talk, so it's kind of a series of emanations of of lesser beings. Now one of these lesser beings became prideful and created the world. So to the Gnostics, matter is evil. Jesus to the Gnostics is a savior who didn't take on real flesh and blood. He only appeared to be that way, a heresy (laughs) known as docetism or someone said Seamism, that he seemed to be a man, but he wasn't. So Gnostics believed that matter is evil. And they also believed that, so, so they believed that we had pre-existent souls trapped in bodies. And Jesus was this divine messenger with, who gave us the secret keys, the password, to escape this body. So this resulted in, Some Gnostics were very ascetic, which means disciplined. They beat their body. They made it their slave. They tortured it. And this idea of matter being bad, the body something to beat up, influenced the church, and especially monasticism, as we'll get into it. Take the the good principle of disciplining your body to bring it to the Lordship of Christ to a perversion of your body is sinful. Your body is what's preventing you from experiencing ecstasy with God. But So that's the basics of of Gnosticism. Uh, Along with this came Marcion, who was not a Gnostic per se, but his ideas were influenced by Gnosticism. Marcion said that the God of the Old Testament, the one who created the world, is the bad guy in the story. He's the one who's envious, jealous, capricious, gets mad at the drop of a hat, incredibly harsh, unbending. He said, that's the evil God. Jesus came to teach us a new God, a God of love. The father of Jesus, according to Marcion, was not the God of the Old Testament. He was uh, a father figure. Marcion taught that there was no future judgment that God wasn't looking for obedience. He just wants to be love. He just wants a relationship with us. Uh, similar messages that keep popping up in the church. And it's amazing <clears throat> that Satan puts these aspects of God, his love and his goodness, in the mouths of false prophets. God is so good. He is so loving. He does want to be loved. He does offer us forgiveness and rich fellowship with him. But along with that is his reality of his his rigidness, of his sternness, of his love, which has to include judgment and hatred for sin. Any love that does not hate that which is destroying someone is not love. So Marcion, because of his view of the God of the Old Testament being an evil God, actually started teaching that the snake was the hero in the Garden of Eden. The one trying to introduce us to right knowledge, so good and evil, real life, and God was the one trying to squelch it. Along with this, Marcion started his own official Bible, which didn't include any of the Old Testament. It included ten of Paul's letters and an edited version of Luke. Wherever Luke made references to the Old Testament, he clipped those out so he had Luke, and the ten gospels. And he started saying this was authorized scripture. So the church responded to these threats of Gnosticism and Marcionism in three ways. Uh, what I'm saying today, each of these, is, there's going to be a question from each one of these points in the review, so pay, uh, pay attention. Three ways that the church responded to this. You've got to remember, there was, you've got to picture the situation. A lot of new Christians the apostles were gone this all happened around the mid-100s Marcion went to Rome I think about 140 preaching this message he actually gave a huge donation of of money he was a wealthy businessman to the church at Rome but when his ideas started being renounced church had to give the the money back I'm gonna have to start moving a lot quicker than I am but he's um, yes so this is the situation here where the apostles are gone you don't have an authorized New Testament in your, in your pocket. You have the Old Testament, but there, here's some teachers coming rejecting the Old Testament. There's also teachers coming in and saying, you know, I have direct revelation from Jesus Christ about what he was really trying to say. What you're hearing is a perversion of Christians. I have it on direct divine revelation that this is the message that Jesus was trying to tell you. If you're a hungry new Christian, you are right for this the wolf to pick you because when someone says no that's not right who are you going to believe so the church came up with three things to fight against heresy the first were creeds a basic rule of faith where they condense the, the teachings of christianity uh, it's very similar to the apostles creed the apostles creed the legend is that each one of the apostles added a line that was proven to be false but. That being said, the basic ideas, and I have included the Apostles' Creed. Let's just take a quick look at that on the first uh, or second page of your notes. But what this Apostles' Creed did, it was against Gnosticism and Marcionism. And he says, I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. So that was the first thing they put into the Creed, that it was important to believe that God was the creator, The matter was good. They believe that Jesus Christ, his only son, conceived by power of the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That he was a real historical figure. They put him in a place in history. Uh, He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. That was against Marcion, a God who judges. And they said uh, the Holy Catholic Church, I'll get into that, uh, Irenaeus used, I think it was Irenaeus or or, um, Ignatius, first coined the term universal or Catholic, which means universal or according to the whole. Uh, That's what Catholic means. When they were trying to respond to that, they were saying, if you're a Catholic Christian, it means you are believing what has been believed by the majority of the body right back to the time of Christ, according to the whole, as opposed to Gnostic teachers who... Have no pedigree and are just coming onto the scene. So the first thing was the creed or the rule of faith. And before baptism, they would ask three questions. They'd ask one question about Do you believe God the Father is the creator? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus was born under Pilate, died for our sins, is going to come and judge the dead? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church? And if you answered yes to those three questions, then you'd be baptized. So the first thing was the creed. Second thing was the canon. Marcion raised an interesting question, what, are the auth- what words of God, what books, have the authority of God? Because they believed that the New Testament, in some ways, was Scripture. We see this in Peter, when he's talking about men who distort and twist Paul's writings as they do the rest of Scripture. So he's putting Paul's writings in Scripture. So they started discussing what should be included in this canon of Scripture. Canon means rule. What is the authorized Word of God by which we can measure things, whether they're true or not? Uh, They had three criteria. It had to be early. In other words, it had to be written by someone who was either an eyewitness or a secondhand source of of Jesus. It had to have that apostolic authority. It had to have universal acceptance among the church, meaning everywhere people had to know that this was divine. The purpose in this wasn't so much in just arbitrarily deciding what was belonging in God's word, but saying if something has the mark of the Holy Spirit, it's going to find universal acceptance and it's going to have a spiritual power to it. So that was just some of the criteria. And in 170, there was they got a, a council in Rome, Muratorian, the. I'm not sure if it was a council or synod, but anyway, I'll, I'll explain the difference in a little bit. Uh, came up with a list of, of the scriptures and included most of it. There was only a few books that were in question of the 27 that are in. Hebrews, because they weren't sure who published it, who, who wrote it. And uh, 1 and 2 Peter, a couple of the shorter ones. But the vast majority, the four Gospels, the other ones, they've received universal acceptance. As far as, there's a couple books that almost made the cut, but didn't. I'm going to highlight one of them. It was called The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, a lot of the men we're looking at today, Tertullian, uh, Origen, Irenaeus, they actually believed that The Shepherd of Hermas was inspired scripture. It received widespread recognition up until the 4th century when uh, Athanasius, who compiled the list now of the 27 knocked it off his list. But the Shepherd of Hermas basically is a series of visions to a man named Hermas by an angel who took the form of a shepherd. It's very strict in its moralism. I mean, it completely denounces uh, divorce and remarriage, which, which is a good thing. But some of the questionable things about this, is in this Shepherd of Hermas it, it says that you only be forgiven once after baptism. And so that idea became very common in the early church and that's why a lot of people waited till their deathbed to be baptized. <laughs> you want to wait as long as you can because that's when you're going to get your sins away. Uh, another thing was it implied that Jesus Christ was an incarnation of the Holy Spirit. So it had some kind of muddled views on the Trinity. But for the most part, they developed the canon where you could point to saying this is the authorized word of God and there wasn't a whole lot of debate. The third thing they did was apostolic succession. This is where the bishop started to rise in prominence. Because you see in the New Testament period, there's bishops, deacons, presbyters, uh, and they're kind of an informal role, and they're kind of equal. But the bishop kind of grew in power, and he became the head spiritual authority for that region or that city. Uh, Bishop's role, he was to be very... knowledgeable about the scriptures and in order to be a legitimate bishop he had to trace his authority back to the apostles he had to say the apostles knew this person who taught this person who taught me they had to trace it back they had to show that what they they had a line of succession back to the apostles that the Gnostics didn't have so the three ways that the church responded to this is what was the first one the creeds the second one the canon, the third one, Apostolic Succession. This next thing that the church had to deal with, I find extremely fascinating. And I've, I've been fascinated by this movement ever since I've heard about it. Because it sounds so familiar to modern day, the modern day Pentecostal movement. In the early 160s, a man came out of the hills claiming visions, speaking in tongues, saying that this was the new age of the Spirit was coming upon us. He said, you know how the age of the Son was more strict than the age of the Father, the Old Testament? He pointed to the Sermon on the Mount, which has a a stricter code than the Old Testament. He says, well, the age of the Spirit is going to be even more strict, and he had two women who became very famous for their prophecies. They would go into a trance, almost lose control of their body, and start uttering, believe it or not, utterances.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and people started taking this as the divine proof. People were very excited about this new movement. They, they pointed to how the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, was going to come upon them. and. Ever since then, the church has not been exactly sure what to make of them, whether this was a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, or whether this was demonic. Some bishops tried to exorcise demons from this uh, Priscilla, and I don't remember this other woman's name, unsuccessfully. They thought it was demonic. Uh, church leaders criticized these Montanists, as they became to call. They called themselves the New Prophecy. Montanists, but they criticized them of, of five things, let's see if I can remember them. Uh, first one was that their trances were uncontrolled, they said the pattern since the apostles has been to teach in a rationally controlled, clear way, and these people, who knows what they're saying, whether these are visions from God or whether they are from demons. Second thing was that they're not submitting to authority. They're saying, I don't need the authority of the church over me because I have the Holy Spirit speaking directly through me. A third concern was that they were putting their own visions over and against the scriptures. A fourth thing was that they were putting on makeup. I think mostly the women. And the the fifth, there was a fifth one. But basically, that was the... (laughs) That was basically the problem the church had with Montanus. Now, Montanism attracted one of the strictest, most brilliant minds of the 2nd century. Remember, the 2nd centuries are the 100s. I'm going to try to get this clear, but it gets very confusing. When someone says 4th century, you start thinking 400s. 4th century is the 300s. So this is the 200s, the 3rd century. Just to get that straight, but his name was Tertullian. He lived in North Africa Let's see if I can in there somewhere he was a lawyer by by trade. he became a Christian when he was forty, and he had a, a keen intellectual mind. He attacked Marcion in pithy ways saying. Remember how Marcion said that Jesus didn't have an actual flesh and, and, and blood body? He said, you're more likely to find a man who doesn't have a heart and a brain than you are to find a savior who doesn't have a body. He also said about Nas Marcion, he said, our God created the whole heavens and the earth. Marcion's God has not created a single vegetable <laughs> because he didn't and teach matter. Tertullian wanted... No part of philosophy, which is interesting because at the same time, we're going to look at two men who were in Alexandria, who were using Greek philosophy to start explaining the faith and showing that it was reality that God had revealed to them. But Tertullian wanted nothing to do with any type of revelation that was outside of Jesus and the the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. He says, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? But Tertullian joined the Montanists. Tertullian, some of his other phrases are the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church, just a, a very witty guy. But he, he joined this Montanist group, and he says bitterly, since he was objecting to the people who were condemning, and he says, since when did the Holy Spirit get chased into a book? He saw that this, he felt that this was a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, while he was a Montanist, he wrote against praxis. Now it's not sure whether praxis was a real person or whether it was just a pseudonym for a bishop of Rome and rather than come out and attack a bishop of Rome, he made a a pseudonym called him praxis. But anyways, this praxis was teaching modalism. It's it's also on that, that chart, I think. It says one God who only takes on three different modes or three different masks. He's not three distinct persons. It's just one God. First he was God the Father, then he became God the Son, then he became God the Holy Spirit. Tertullian was one of the first people to develop the phrase, one substance, three persons, or one what, three who's, which has became the Orthodox. Uh, Very far ahead of his time in, in identifying that. His works though were in Latin, and when the question came up again, it was in Greek. And so his careful distinctions in Latin were missed until later on because they were trying to redefine it in Greek later on. And we'll look at that the Council of Nicaea and what happened uh, in the middle of the 4th century or or the 300s. Let's take a look now at Alexandria. Remember I said how it was the intellectual capital of the world because of its famous library, its museums, it attracted all kinds of philosophers who were going to borrow things. You didn't have access to the internet or your own local library, so if you wanted to read this, I mean manuscripts, uh, throughout the whole medieval times would cost like a year's wages because it would take a year for some of them to copy. So you wanted to be a place where you could have access to a library. So Clement, in some ways, is much different than Tertullian. Clement wanted to use philosophy. He taught philosophy, but he gave a Christian meaning to the terms. He tried to use, you know, you've already accepted this concept of the Logos, you've accepted these other philosophical concepts of, and say, Stoicism, which believed in a a natural law. He said, these are concepts that are very compatible with what we're trying to say in Christianity. For Clement, he believed that philosophy was to the Greeks what the prophets were to the Jews. In other words, that they were the taskmasters to bring you to Christ. That's what he thought. That just like the old God gave the prophets to the Jews to give them an intellectual framework to understand who he was, God gave the Greeks philosophers who would give them a a way to understand God. Now, Clement taught at at a catechumen school. Now, one of his students was Origen. Origen is one of the most prolific writers, one of the most brilliant minds the church has ever known, but he's also been condemned as a heretic. He grew up in a home that was saturated with scripture. Constantly, his, from the time they were little boys, their father pounded it in, read the scriptures, become absorbed in the scriptures. When he was 16, Origen's father was killed Um, He was martyred. Origen wanted to go join his father, but his mom hid all his clothes, so he couldn't leave the house. (laughs) So he instead wrote a letter to his dad, urging him not to to grow faint in this time of, of trial. But when he was 18, by the time he was 18, he was made the head of this catechumen school. Catechumen school is where you're teaching the basics of the Christianity in preparation for baptism. But he was made the head of this school, Uh, And people started recognizing his genius. A wealthy convert gave him seven secretaries, his own house, his own stenographer. He apparently had the ability to dictate seven books at once. Something like my mom. (laughs) But along with this, Origen, who loved the scripture, he loved the rule of faith, didn't want anything to do with that, also loved to speculate. When he read the two creations in the Old Testament. You know how it tells it first in Genesis 1 and then another version of it in Genesis 2. He said the first one where it just says male and female He created them. He said first creation God created pre-existent souls that were gender neutral. In the second creation God created the male and females and gave them bodies. But he was clear. This, This is just my speculation. When he looked at Uh, Esau, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He said, well, there's no injustice with God. The only way this makes sense, that God could love one infant in the womb and hate another infant in the womb, is if these men had pre-existent souls and Esau had done something to anger God in his pre-existent state. That was just an example of how Origen's mind worked. Another thing that Origen did was the way he um, interpreted scripture. Craig said that this is a weekend for body, soul, and spirit. So Origen thought, you know what, the scriptures can be interpreted in the same level. There's the level of the body, which was the plain meaning, the literal meaning of the text. It could be interpreted in the moral sense, allegorically, for example, the commands in the Old Testament to not eat swine don't actually refer to not eating pork for us today. They have an allegorical meaning of don't hang around with pigs. <laughs> don't spend your time with immoral people. That was his allegorical interpretation of that. But then he also found a spiritual meaning, just like we have a spirit in the text, where he, saw, he looked for Christ on every page of the Old Testament. He says if we only have the literal meaning of the Old Testament, then most of it's not going to be applicable for us today. And he didn't think that God would preserve a book for us, that doesn't have rich meaning for us on every page. Now for us Protestants who were more uh, Antiochian, there was, you'll see that there's a conflict between the school in Antioch, which you see up there on, on the right, and Alexandria. Antioch was much more literal. And this you'll see this when it comes to head at the Council of Chalcedon later on. But here in Alexandria, they were more speculative influence from the philosophers remember for Origen to say to the pagans that this is the inspired word of God you had to at that time show that it had different levels of meaning because that's what the Greeks felt about their writings in Homer and the Iliad it had different levels if this was God it's gonna prove its divine fingerprint by different levels of meaning you may judge him but you notice that Paul does some similar things with his teaching when he refers to the the command about the ox being allowed to eat while he treads out the grain. He finds a a spiritual or a moral meaning on that by saying this also shows that the minister is worthy of his hire, that elders should be supported. When he looks at the story of Sarah and and Hagar, he finds a spiritual meaning there of how Sarah represents grace and Hagar represents law. So Origen has some... uh, historical precedent for doing that. But anyway, Origen, for all of his allegorizing, took a passage in Matthew very literally about some who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, which he did, and later regretted. (laughs) He has no kids today. But he, possibly because of his act. He was not allowed to be ordained in Alexandria, so he went up to Caesarea and spent the rest of his days there later. Uh, During a persecution in, I think, around 250, he was stretched on a rack and died from the injuries of thereof. Uh, But so Origen also speculated on universal reconciliation, one of his ideas. So he thought that perhaps even the devil himself would come back to God very very interesting very interesting person he also wrote against celsus this is the third attack the first one was Gnosticism and marcion uh, The next one was the montanus whether it was an attack or whether it was just a misinterpreted act of the spirit is for god alone to know right now but the third attack was from celsus interestingly enough we have corresponding attacks today in gnosticism which is still alive in the new age movement and outright gnosticism um, there's some of the heretical forms of Montanists and people who say, I don't need the church, I don't need the Bible, I just need private revelation from God. And there's also people like Celsus. Remember how the first wave attack against the church was full of ridiculous rumors that they were eating newborn babies and, and committing incest and orgies and cannibals? Well, Celsus wrote, started writing in the 180s a much more sophisticated attack on Christianity. His attack is much more like Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins today. Uh, some of the things he, he, he said were, uh, God could not have created this world with all its problems. Because if, if God had created a world, he would have created a world that wasn't so full of evil and suffering. God would not have chosen to save the world through an illegitimate, carp- an illegitimate man who sends his disciples out to raise trouble and says, flee the city as soon as there's any sign of trouble. He would not have picked as a disciple someone who would betray him the resurrection from the dead that's absurd what about the people who have been eaten by lions is god going to go out and collect all these little pieces from the dung to recreate his people this is the type of attack celsus made it was a much more informed attack but it was still a vicious attack Origen wrote against celsus and much of celsus's writings that we know these attacks today because Origen preserved them But Origen did so much for Christianity by showing that it was intellectually respectable. He was the one who was was teaching that all truth is God's truth. There's revelation outside of Scripture, Origen said, but never against Scripture. God is revealing himself not just to the prophets, but to everybody. He's revealed himself to the Greeks, and they have a measure of truth. And what these people believe, there is truth to it. So that was Celsus. So the early attacks in that, Marcion, and Gnosticism, Montanism, and Celsus. You'll see in your chart, and um, you don't have to look at it now, but you can look at it later, but you'll see that persecution came in waves for the church. The church was not constantly getting persecuted everywhere. It first was in pockets, but around 250, The church had had a period of about 50 years of relative peace. I talked about Perpetua's persecution under Septimus Severus. About 250, though, Rome was in shambles. Uh, Inflation was through the roof. Rome had taken a lot of gold and silver out of their metals, and and, uh, their currency was starting to become worthless. People had grown lazy, dependent on their slaves to do the work. They had fractured among the different emperors who were generals, who were ruthless but not skilled diplomats. But Septimus saw that Rome was in shambles. The barbarians up there on all sides were threatening to to crash into the empire. He said, what we need is a return to the pagan gods who blessed us. This is Decius, if I forgot to mention that said, we need to return to the pagan gods. What he was looking for was not martyrs, because he says that just was multiplying this problem of Christianity. He wanted apostates. So he was now torturing people until they would renounce their faith, which introduced a new term into Christianity called confessors. Because before, people who confessed weren't around because they were killed. Now, there were people who were tortured and refused to give up and were now called confessors. But there were also a bunch of people, the lapsed, who were unprepared for this spiritually and physically and renounced their faith. Now, this persecution was severe and widespread and it lasted for a couple of years. But after this couple of years, people started, when the persecution ended, a lot of these people who had renounced their faith started feeling guilty and they wanted to come back to the church. And it created a real conflict. What do we do with people who have renounced their faith in persecution? Do we just let them back in? Tertullian, who was dead by now, was very strict on this. We can't have adulterers and thieves. I mean, we need to keep a church that's pure, that's an example to the rest of the world of what it means to be a Christian. Well, the confessors during this period were actually the lenient ones. They were welcoming the lapsed back in with open arms. But a man by the name of Novation started saying, no, we need a pure church. There is no way these people can come back. What do you, what, if we let these people back into the church, what happens the next time a martyrdom comes through town? If, if people can simply renounce their faith and come back when it's done, that's going to completely break the will of the people who are, who are dying for their faith. We can't have in the same church people who persevered under, per, under persecution We can't have in the same church people who were cowards. Now, at this time, Cyprian was the bishop of Rome. He had some very strong ideas about what what you need to be saved. He believed that the way the Holy Spirit imparted regeneration was through the mysteries of the church. And you needed to be in fellowship with the church in order to be saved. Some of his sayings were... He cannot have God as his father, who does not have the church as his mother. And outside the church, there is no salvation. So Cyprian was pleading to let people back into the church, saying, there's no way. I mean, Peter renounced Jesus under under pressure, and he was allowed back in. We need to let these people back in. They decided that people who had broken under torture would be allowed back in because their spirit had been strong, it was their body that was weak. People who had recanted too easily and wanted back in had now repented, he said, you can come back in either on your deathbed or if another wave of persecution comes through and you have a chance to prove yourself. Some of this seems harsh, but you gotta understand Christianity was such a fragile thing all through these years. And they realized the the power of precedent. And if you let people in too easily, this is actually where the whole idea of penance came in. What to do with sins after baptism. It started prescribing uh, acts of goodness or acts of sacrifice that people could do to prove that they were truly repentant. Because you can't just have a church full of people who say they're repentant but aren't actually repenting. So that was some of the issues that they dealt with in 250. Now, around 303, a general, well, it was actually near the end of the 200s, but one of the most powerful, wisest, strongest men took the position of emperor in Rome. He capped the prices. He says, if anybody's found selling an item for more than this, they'll be put to death something Obama might want to give a try <laughs> he started putting gold back into the currents into this he wanted to rid. it started the persecution started by saying we got to get Christians out of the army because they're not reliable Christianity had become very popular among the soldiers at this time it was sweeping through there so he said all Christians have to get out of the army well generals don't like to lose troops so they started putting massive pressure and persecution on the soldiers saying you need to renounce your faith so you can still be allowed to fight with us. But this persecution started picking up um, speed and it just spread throughout the empire. They ruthless, destroying Bibles, destroying the buildings, destroying the works. Something else, though, that Diocletian did was he divided the emperor in two ways and appointed four people. On one side of the empire, he he split it in half. He made them Augustuses, one on each side. And every 20 years, they were supposed to turn over the control to their Caesar, to their underling. The system worked for a while, but Diocletian and Galerius, we were just venting on the church, waves of persecution. I mean, some of these people were gouging out eyes, cutting off limbs, trying to torture people. They had learned you don't just want to kill a Christian, you want to maim them. Death is easy. Living with a broken body is not so easy. So, Diocletian kind of gave up and retired to grow cabbages. He didn't want anything to do with the stress of the empire. Galerius on his deathbed, started getting panicky. He says, I need everybody to pray to their gods. And he issued a small edict which said, stop persecuting the Christians and tell them to pray for me. (laughs) But this persecution continued. Uh, Constantine was the son of one of the Caesars, which were the underlings. And these empires, as soon as Diocletian and Galerius were on started fighting each other for control, of the empire. Constantine claimed – where's my – Constantine – well, you you can see on the left there. (laughs) It only works when it's in my eyes. (laughs) Are you out there? y'all wearing red. <laughs> anyway, Constantine was, was fighting the, these men and he, he conquered the, the West. And he was conquering a rival in the East. And then on the night before battle, he had a vision of either some people say it was a cross in the sky or it might have been the symbol chi Rho, which was the symbol for the, the the Greek letters for the, the start of Christ, which was a, 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 a Christian symbol. It's, it's an X and kind of like a little shepherd's staff with, with a P. But he heard a vision that by this system, by this symbol, you will conquer. So he required this liberum, this chi-ro symbol to be placed on the, sh- sh- on the shields of his men. And they marched into battle and defeated the rival emperor. He was drowned into. he fell off the bridge and drowned in his own armor, and Constantine credited the Christian God for this victory. And when he took authority, he issued the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity throughout the empire. Eusebius, who was a church historian who wrote around the same time, there's going to be two important Eusebiuses that we're going to look at who lived in the same century. This is Eusebius of Caesarea. The other one is Eusebius of Nicomedia. But Eusebius of Caesarea, the historian, was amazed at what God was doing through Constantine. He thought Constantine was God's appointed prophet, bringing relief to the church. He thought Constantine can do no wrong. but. Things were changing to the church when Constantine, when Christianity had the first per- Christian emperor. They went from being an outlawed, persecuted sect to being the hottest thing in Europe, where suddenly people were flooding into the church because it was the social thing to do. Some people wonder, did Constant- was Constantine really a Christian? Some people say, no, this was just a political maneuver. Well, no, it had to be more than a political maneuver because the men of Rome who had power, the elite, the old money people, were still staunchly pagan and were against Christianity. He alienated all of those people by claiming to be a Christian. The most likely scenario was that he had a genuine vision, a genuine desire to follow Christ But he had a lot of human pride, a lot of pagan ideas mixed in, and a lot of misunderstanding that colored what he did. But Constantine, he gave his sister, whose name was Constance. This this family has a bit of a con hang-up because it was Constantine and his sister Constance. Constantine's three sons were Constantine II. and Constinius Second. <laughs> Connie, come here. <laughs> so he gave his wife, Constance, to the other emperor, Licinius. And then, in so doing that, he was able to conquer Licinius and defeat him. And Constantine became the sole emperor of, of, of Rome again. What he did, I don't know, can you see Constantinople there, it's right between the Black Sea and and the Mediterranean Sea, right, right around there. Whether he moved this because God told him to, or whether he thought this was a wise, he claimed God told him to, or whether this was just a wise strategic move, it sure turned out to be, he moved the Roman capital to Byzantium, which was what Constantinople was called before he renamed it after himself. Constantinople is how it's pronounced, if I said it differently before. (laughs) Jerome said that Constantinople is dressed in the nakedness of the rest of the empire because he pillaged all the the statues. (laughs) This I found funny. There was a statue of Apollo. He put it on a tall platform so that it was about 125 feet. He cut off Apollo's head and had a likeness of his own head. put on the top of Apollo, the original photoshopping. (laughs) So, Constantinople was, was growing, it was flourishing, it was beautiful. He was giving people tax breaks to whoever would come live in his glorious city. He was building magnificent buildings. And this was starting to have quite an impact on Christian worship. Some people have said it's only this century that we're starting to kind of rethink some of the Things that Constantine, some of the impact that Constantine had on worship. Uh, it was around this time that uh, Christian pastors started to be called priests. Uh, the modern he started uh, a church building format that's very similar with a sanctuary and a, uh, an entryway. These buildings became very elaborate, and the church was starting to change. People like Eusebius thought, this is God's answer to our problems. He can do no wrong. Whatever Constantine does must be right. But the church was slowly changing, whereas before it had been a religion for the poor, it was now becoming something that the wealthy wanted. Church services used to be simple, and the audience, the congregation, would participate and share. Now they were becoming elaborate services with choirs and... uh, all these things, whereas all up front and people were just were, were just coming to watch, so while a flood of people were coming into the church, a flood of people were leaving. They said, "This is apostasy. this peace cannot be good. Christianity thrives when it's being tested, when it's being persecuted, and in the east, they started flocking to monasteries, leaving the world. See, a lot of people embraced martyrdom because they thought that martyrdom was a second baptism. So at baptism you get all your sins erased. Martyrdom is another chance to get all your sins erased. And that thought kept them strong in the face of persecution. They thought we need a new way to renounce the body, to discipline the flesh and they left out they left they went to the deserts monasticism some of it comes from stoic ideas about uh, renouncing the body the stoics you know a a stoic personality is someone who's kind of uh, not up and down emotionally very steady the stoics taught that there was a natural order to do things that they believed in fate and they thought the way to outwit fate was to renounce the pleasures, was to get control of your emotions before fate had a chance to give you an emotional assault. So they believed that you, you submit to this moral order and just become passive accepting, renounce it. And so Christians adopted some of those ideas, also took some ideas from the hermits who were in, in Persia who were coming up in Syria. But this mo- movement was not, all bad. The monks found something in the desert. It became incredibly popular and people are not stupid. They do not renounce these pleasures of the flesh. They do not beat themselves up just for the purpose of doing it. They found something in that desert that kept them motivated. I want to conclude this first talk with one of the earliest hermits. His name was Saint Anthony of Egypt. He was before Constantine. He did not leave to be a hermit out of reaction to what was going on in the church. He was born around 240. His parents died. They were very wealthy. This was down uh, south of Alexandria in Egypt. And he was left with a lot of money. But he looked, he he couldn't read, but this passage came to mind. If you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Then you'll be perfect. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. So he was thinking about that passage and he walked into a congregational meeting and that was the text that the person was preaching on. He thought, this is God confirming this to me. So he sold all his possessions. He had a sister that he took care of. So he saved enough for her to take care of. And then he went out to the desert. He wanted to pursue God. The desert was thought to be the place where the demons went. So he went out to the desert to do spiritual warfare with the demons. People who had come near the beginning of his ministry, he, he found this cave. And while he was in this cave, he was just completely assaulted by demonic forms, by snakes and wolves and bears and lions. And he was crying out to God for help, but he just kept fighting. These spiritual attacks would leave him physically sore for days. Finally, this light came through the top of the cave and said, you've done something to the effect. You've done well, Anthony. He said, well, why didn't you save me? He said, I I wanted to see how you would would do. I want to train you. Augustine, I mean, uh, Anthony, by the way, we know much of this, of life of St. Anthony from Athanasius, who we'll look at next session, who wrote The biography of St. Anthony, which became a huge bestseller, inspired so many people to leave the monastic community. Anthony went out, he found an abandoned Roman fort that had its own well. He made some arrangements with people to just periodically throw food in there. And he lived by himself for 20 years. During this time, he pursued God with all of his being. People would listen in and they'd sometimes hear him wailing and shouting and yelling at creatures. But they started talking to him, and he's developed such wisdom and insight that people were coming to him with spiritual problems. When he heard about the persecution around the time of Diocletian, which was around the 300s, he wanted to come out and be a martyr. But his fame had spread so much that the authorities didn't want to touch him. So he wasn't even allowed to die for his faith. So what he did instead was he comforted the people who were being tortured, who were under trial, or who who are, had, had suffered. He encouraged them. He became so known for his, his wisdom and insight into life. He had visions from God. Just, he's such a fascinating character to me, this connection to God that he received by renouncing the pleasures of the flesh. He believed that the, pleasure, the spirit is strongest when the pleasures of the flesh are weak. Monastics leave us a, we're going to look more at it in the next session, but it's kind of a, a curious legacy that they left behind. Because they took literally some hard sayings of Jesus, about selling what you have, about praying without ceasing. Monks tried to just devote their life to following God completely. I mean, in so doing, they faced a lot of, of trouble. I mean, their own worst enemy became their... They had huge psychological battles out there, especially dealing with sexual temptation. Some of these monks would strip off their clothes and dive into a thorn bush to try to quell the inner fire. Some monks would put their fingers in flames when they had a, a sexual thought, trying to renounce it that way. Jerome, who we'll look at next, said... Don't eat anything hot. It's just going to raise the temperature of your body, which is going to make it so much more difficult to stay pure. He also, by the way, found it easy to stay pure by never bathing. (laughs) 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 So that was a whirlwind tour through 150 years. It's time for a review. Girls, if you have any chance of winning this, one of you is going to have to break Jesse Chalk's other foot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't actually do it. So, score is I said 10 to 2. I accidentally gave Jesse an extra point last night because, yeah. So it's back to 9 to (laughs) 2. Okay. Name at least one defining mark of Gnosticism for one point. One
1: defining mark of Gnosticism.
0: Absolutely, very good. I'm going to give for four points the opportunity for a girl to stand up
1: <laughs>
0: and think of one other defining mark oh my of mathematics. Yeah. Um, very good, wow. <laughs> For one point, why did Marcion edit the New Testament?
1: Marcion edited the New Testament
0: because he didn't like the idea of saying God judgment. Very good. Yeah. Timothy has a wonderful strategy. Stand up, repeat the question, and during that time you can think about it. <laughs> <laughs> What's Celsius known for, for one point? just say you're tied. Okay. <laughs> Name, what were the three levels of interpretation that Origen used for the scripture? Uh, Jarvis? Is that Jarvis or Dalton? This is Jarvis. Jarvis. Jarvis, yes. Three <laughs> levels yes. that he used to
1: interpret scripture. <laughs> Very good.
0: <laughs> what was the name of the first Christian emperor? I it. I I I it. Constantine. I think it was Constantine. Very good. Those boys have 15, (laughs) the girls have 11, no 12. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Uh, it's 10.48, I went a little over, so if we could be back here in 12 minutes instead of 15, that would be awesome, thank you.